You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Welcome. My name is Lise Grande, and I'm the president of the United States Institute of Peace, which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. We're honored to welcome the newly appointed Prosecutor General of Ukraine, Andrei Kostin, during his first official trip to Washington, and to also welcome Ambassador Clint Williamson, who served with distinction as the U.S. Ambassador at Large for War Crimes, and who continues to be one of the world's leading experts on atrocity crimes, and Dr. Azim Ibrahim, a leading voice on genocide and extremism. USIP is proud to have supported U.S. efforts to prevent mass atrocities over many years, including the convening in 29 of the Bipartisan Genocide Prevention Task Force. It was co-chaired at the time by Secretary Albright, and by Secretary Cohen, and that very important task force helped lay the foundation for what has become our country's current framework to stop atrocities and to hold perpetrators accountable. We're proud now to join with institutions across the U.S., indeed across the world, who are determined to hold Russia accountable for its unprovoked war of aggression in Ukraine and for the war crimes it has committed during the conflict, including killing and kidnapping of civilians and mass destruction of civilian infrastructure. As we'll be discussing today, there is a very strong argument that Russian conduct amounts to genocide. We encourage those of you with us in person and joining us online to use the chat box on our events webpage and the hashtag UkraineUSIP on social media. I'm now very pleased to turn the floor over to my good friend, the Vice President of USIP and the head of our Russia and Europe Center, Ambassador Bill Taylor, who will be leading today's discussion. Please, <coughs> thank you very much. Um, I'm very, very pleased to be here with, with this group. Uh, it's great to be back. I've been traveling for some time, so uh, I'm pleased to be back home. Um, uh, I was with uh, Ambassador Williamson um, uh, in Kiev um, a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, um, where we visited Prosecutor General, um, the places that you are working. Uh, we visited Bucha um, and Irpin and Hostomel. Um, so, uh, the world has seen your job. The world has seen what you are doing. Um, and now the question is, what do we do about that? What, what, are, what are the implications? What are the consequences? How do we hold people accountable uh, for, these, for these atrocities? Um, as Lise just indicated, there's a strong case um, that can be made that we'll hear about here today um, that this is genocide. Um, and we don't use that word, term, uh, lightly. 
Um, it, it has great implications that we will also talk about here today. Um, but we face the facts. We face what's going on there. And as I say, I was there to, uh, to see that. Um, atrocities that build up toward genocide um, um, lead us to th think about intent. And intent's hard to prove. Um, there are a couple of lawyers, I suspect, in, in this room, and there are probably a couple of lawyers uh, online with us. I know there are a couple of lawyers on this, on this panel. Um, and, and they will describe um, intent and, the, and proving intent. Um, difficult. Um, important that we, that we address this. Um, these three people um, that, we're, that we are lucky to have with us. Um, Lisa's already generally introduced. Let me just <clears throat> go into a little more detail on Andrei Kostin, who has been the Prosecutor General in Ukraine since the end of July. Um, graduate of Odessa National University, Faculty of Law, uh, International Bar Association, uh, elected to the RADA, Vohovna RADA, head of the Legal Policy Committee in 2020, um, distinguished lawyer, um, uh, understands this job very well. Um, strong support from President Zelensky. Uh, Ambassador Clint Williamson, um, uh, again, Lisa's uh, introduced. Um, Clint um, uh, is the Senior Director for International Justice, Georgetown Center for National Security, which I understand is a, is, is a revision of the new title. As of yesterday. As of yesterday. So as of yesterday, Senior Director for International Justice, Georgetown Center of, for National Security. Glad, glad to have you here. He's also the US, uh, leads the U.S. participation in the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group, <clears throat> excuse me, established following the Russian invasion of Ukraine to support war crimes units of the Office of the Prosecutor General of Ukraine. I, Clinton and I saw each other in, uh, in Kiev uh, a, a week ago. Um, he was also a senior fellow at the McCain Institute, ambassador at large, as Lisa's already indicated, for war crimes issues. Um, and finally, um, we have Dr. Azim Ibrahim, who is the director of special initiatives. Uh, Azim, very glad to have you here. Special initiatives at the New Lines Institute. Um, Adjunct Research Professor, Strategic Studies Institute, U.S. Army War College, Ph.D., University of Cambridge, Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, and a World Fellow at Yale. So three people with, with incredible experience and background um, to be able to help us uh, walk through this thing. So, um, Andre, um, I'd like to turn to you. This, again, welcome to Washington. First trip as Prosecutor General. Um, you have a message for the United States, uh, for the world, um, on your job. Uh, you've been on it for coming up on two months. Um, what's the challenge? What, what do you see right now? What's the progress? What's the challenge? Where are you going from here? Should be on. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ambassador, and uh, thank you for inviting me and meet here and thanks for all of our participants who are online. Uh, it's very important to talk in person. This is the main aim of my visit. 
course you understand that we have a lot of to do in Ukraine and our teams in Kharkiv region are working you know from early morning till late night prosecutors investigators of state security services investigators of national police experts they work on the ground in different towns and villages of liberated Kharkiv region. I have already mentioned the territory which was liberated by our army from the beginning of September. This is about 8,000 square kilometers. It's like the territory of the state of Connecticut. So just for you to, to, to imagine. And in each of these hundreds of villages and towns, we know and we see and we already fix are cases of war crimes committed by the aggressor. What we immediately understood when I get the reports from our teams on the ground, when they immediately come uh, to the liberated territory, we saw the same conduct of the aggressor, the same which the world have seen when Bucha, Irpin, Vostomel, Borodyanka were opened. Absolutely the same, starting from bombing of residential multi-storied buildings, as we see in Izium, for instance, and where it, as we saw in Borodyanka near Kyiv. And then coming to shooting of civilians with striped hands, rapes, tortures. So the bodies which we are exhuming every day from 50 to 60 bodies per day, you may imagine how big work is done because we need to identify everyone and we need to identify the uh, uh, to identify the uh, reasons of death of all of these people. And uh, coming, to, coming to what we found at the moment, we understand that the same, as I say, conduct, it's the pattern of Russian aggressor towards Ukrainians. I don't, at the moment, see any difficult challenges in this work. I'm always asked, we just fix this at the moment. We are very well prepared with the help of our partners and experts to accurately collect evidences since we need everyone to be, uh, every, everyone from Russian aggressor to be made accountable, to be punished for what they did. And then now we are close to more legal issues. So for war crimes, for crimes against humanity, we have 
full facilities to make them punished, I mean perpetrators, in Ukrainian legal system, either in person or in absentia. While we hope that we will have more convictions in person since we have a lot of war prisoners or let me say potential war criminals of Russian army captured because of our counter-offensive, which is successful because of we all stand together, because of your military and financial support, since this is our joint victory. So having them captured, we will find, I believe that we will find more war criminals to be uh, convicted in person in Ukraine. But moreover, we may find war criminals of the higher level, which we then can send to the International Criminal Court, to the, uh, within our um, cooperation with Prosecutor Khan. Actually, today it's a news. Today, Parliament voted, adopted with final vote, additional, uh, uh, let's say, additional facilities for the Office of Prosecutor Khan to work on the ground in Ukraine. I hope President Zelensky will sign this law in coming days, and then the investigators of the uh, Office of Prosecutor Khan will have an opportunity to work on the ground in Ukraine, so which will widen his facilities to work on the ground in Ukraine, and which will help us. And then we are coming to our next um, initiative, which is highly supported by every Ukrainian. We all understand that all of these war crimes could not be committed if aggression would have not occur. And we all understand that the crime of aggression is the mother of all other war crimes. And while the ICC have no jurisdiction over the crime of aggression, we are standing for and calling for international support on international tribunal to prosecute and to punish the aggressor with the crime of aggression. And then we are in parallel coming back to the same conduct, same patterns of Russian aggressor. We are, go, come, come, we are moving closer to understanding that what was and is committed by Russian aggressor in Ukraine is genocide of Ukrainian nation. And coming back to other aspects of the accountability of the aggressor, we also understand that Ukraine should be rebuilt, should be reconstructed in after war time. That is why our team, as, as I say in many meetings, let's say it accountability team, 
is dealing also with the international compensation mechanism. We know that due to our international, thanks to our international uh, relations and support of our partners, you have freeze a lot of assets, sovereign funds, and the assets of oligarchs who helped to build this Putin's empire, who became an aggressor and who became the, like the beast which want to ruin all international law in the world. He started to do it in 2008, then very actively did it in 2014. And now he tried to ruin everything. So, we also dealing with compensation mechanism because the, their money should be confiscated and sent to Ukraine to rebuild our country. We have a lot of other very difficult issues. The kidnapping of our people, especially children, Nobody knows at the moment, I'm very open now with you, the amount of them which were deported from Ukraine to Russia, Belarus, or to temporary occupied territories. Nobody knows, we have a lot of figures. Something which we can, on my level, as Prosecutor General Office, confirm. It's about 5.5 thousand children which we identified at the moment, which were kidnapped. But we all understand much more were deported. And it's very difficult to find a mechanism how to take them back. But this is the future of Ukrainian nation, our children. And one more element of genocide as we understand in Ukraine. So, all in all, what I mentioned, I come to our main goal. Our main goal, I, I, I believe our joint main goal, is to prove to all of us, to the civilized world, to all of the Ukrainian, that rule of law prevail over the rule of force. This is our main goal, and we will do everything possible to reach it in any direction of the accountability of the aggressor. So, this is my message for you today. Um, Andre, it's a, it's a great message. Um, it's a heartfelt message. It's a passionate message. It's the right message. Um, your point about winning um, with the support of the West and the weapons that we've provided and the other support that you've mentioned, sanctions, um, that is the top priority. And you are forcing the issue of the accountability to, be, to, to maintain that um, at the fore. Uh, great points on the International Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression. We'll come back to this, I'm sure. Genocide you've raised, Lisa's raised, I've talked about this, I know Azim's going to talk about this as well. The kidnapping is just horrific. It is just horrific, um, uh, as, you've, as you've just described. Compensation is a big part of going forward. All of this uh, in terms of the, both the sovereign, sovereign wealth, the, the sovereign 
revenues um, uh, that, the, that, that the West has frozen, um, that's, that's there. That's there to be taken. Uh, there's some legal aspects of that, which we can probably get to, uh, but that's, that's going to be important. Um, uh, you've mentioned the support from the, the outside, and indeed, Ambassador Williams and Clint, you've got some thoughts on that, and I would love to get your reactions to both what the Prosecutor General said and your sense of how the international community can help in all these efforts. Clint. Well, um, thanks, Bill. And Andre, I, I agree. I, you know, I think you stated you know, where we are very eloquently. And this, this is going to be a long process. Um, the scale of crimes is almost unimaginable. I went to, first went out uh, a week after the war started, started working with the Office of the Prosecutor General on the Polish border. Uh, and we have continued this effort since then. It has grown into a multinational effort that started initially as, as a U.S. project, but was joined by the European Union and United Kingdom. Uh, Secretary Blinken, High Representative Burrell, then Foreign Secretary Truss, have officially rolled this out on May 25th and said this would be the official uh, response from the transatlantic community to support efforts to investigate and prosecute war crimes in, in Ukraine. We've had a great working relationship with the OPG uh, since Andre came in, uh, in in late July. I think there's a new energy in, in the office. Uh, the, the tasks that they have faced would be overwhelming in, in any country, including our own. Um, if, if you imagine uh, crime scenes that stretch for miles, hundreds of bodies that you're having to deal with. There's no prosecutor's office in this country that would be able to handle this seamlessly. But I think the Office of the Prosecutor General has done a fantastic job. Um, I, I think the trajectory of, of their work is, is a very positive one. But just going back to when, when I first met with them a week after the war started, they already had hundreds of cases at that time. Now, the case, the war crimes type cases, uh, number somewhere around 33,000. They're looking at another 15,000 cases that deal with collaborators. So this is, is a huge workload, um, but, but they are making progress. As, as Andre said, there's a good working relationship with the International Criminal Court. Uh, I think that dynamic extends to the work we're doing through the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group. And there is a clear division of labor. I mean, what, what we see in Ukraine is, is somewhat unique, where we have an opportunity to use both a very robust domestic capability to investigate, prosecute crimes, as well as an international capability. And this has been somewhat unusual when you look at, at situations of mass atrocities in, in recent years. Um, but you know, there, there are going to be thousands of cases that, that must be addressed. Very early on, we saw uh, indications of war crimes, even from the first week. The indiscriminate use of force uh, by the Russians, the, the shelling of civilian targets, of apartment buildings, of, of hospitals. With the revelations in Bucha and Irpin after they were, they were liberated, we started seeing evidence of crimes against humanity. Um, people being murdered tortured, sexually assaulted, uh, illegally detained. And since then, 
you know, we were seeing this just in the last week in uh, Izium and, and other places. And, you know, sadly, I, I think this trend has continued, will continue. As more and more territories are liberated, we're going to have to confront these crimes. As to genocide, I think there are very compelling indications that we are seeing a genocide. Um, oftentimes, there's this misperception that a genocide determination is based on threshold numbers of victims. And, and it's understandable. There's an association that tends to be made between genocide and the Holocaust um, or, or, or events in Rwanda, but it's really based on intent. Um, obviously, the intent has to manifest itself, and you get back to the question of numbers a bit then, but it is the intent or it's acts that are committed um, with the intent to uh, destroy in whole or in part a national group, race, or religion. The rhetoric that has come out of Moscow from the very beginning, from President Putin, from, from the Russian media, is clearly clearly indicates an intent to destroy Ukraine as, as a nation, to not even recognize Ukraine as a nation, to not recognize the Ukrainian people. Um, and it has extended to, to acts that are being committed on the ground. And certainly what we're seeing with these forced deportations, the, these filtration efforts, uh, trying to identify and then persecute people who are not willing to embrace this Russification of, of Ukraine. So the challenges are huge. Uh, we have a robust international partnership that, that's working with the OPG. We will continue to do this going forward. Um, and, and I'm quite confident that, that this undertaking is going to be successful. Um, but, you know, we will see over time. Um, and um, we will we'll face the challenges together. <coughs> Thanks, Clint. Um, Ukraine will win. When Ukraine wins, then the accountability can really be clear um, and be enforced. Uh, this is going to be this is going to be important. Uh, Clint, you raised um, this question of genocide. Um, Azim, it's a good lead in to you. You've done some study um, of this um, and have looked at the elements. Um, we talked about the issue of intent. Um, what can you tell us about that, and how did you address this uh, issue of intent? Sure. Th thank you so much, Bill. The word genocide is often used very loosely, and it's often used interchangeably with mass murder. You know, people use a term without understanding what the actual term is, and I, and I understand why they do that. But the word genocide has actually got a very precise legal definition. And that definition is presented to us in the 1948 Genocide Convention. And as Clint mentioned, at the centre of this definition is intent. The intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. It doesn't have to be the whole group. For example, during the Holocaust, the Nazis were not trying to destroy the Jews in Canada because that was not under their control. Whole or in part. And this intent can be attributed to a state through evidence of a general plan, documents, statement, policy statements, etc. Or it can be inferred from systematic pattern of atrocities that are taking place. So there does not have to be an explicit order to destroy a particular group. It can simply be inferred from the pattern that you observe. Uh, there's five genocidal acts, killing, 
causing serious bodily harm, deliberately inflicting f uh, the physical destruction uh, on the conditions of life, uh, birth prevention, and forcibly transferring children. So out of the five, only one of them is killing. Now people think, oh, it has to be numbers, or how many people have been killed. It's nothing to do with numbers, it's about intent. Killing is only one of the indicators. You can kill one person or you can kill a million. It does not change the definition of genocide. Now let me just give you a very quick uh, background of why I'm sitting here. A couple of years ago, we did a very extensive and detailed report on the Uyghur genocide. We put together a coalition of over 50 of the top legal scholars, and this was report was produced by the New Lines Institute, and it was subsequently used by the US State Department to come to its genocide determination. Subsequent to that report, I was invited earlier this year by the Ukrainian government to visit Ukraine and try to ascertain if a similar situation is occurring there. So I was invited by the Ministry of Health. I went to Ukraine in late March, early April. I spent some time there. On my return, I put together three teams of experts. They were open source intelligence experts, language experts who could translate Russian uh, radio communications, telegram channels, and a group of legal experts. So we put together 35 of the top legal scholars from around the globe, and these included some of your former colleagues, prosecutors from the ICC, ICJ, former ambassadors, etc. And the conclusion we came to after applying all the evidence, examining all the evidence, was that the first of all, that the Russian Federation is in breach of the Genocide Convention. Secondly, that the Russian Federation bears state responsibility for inciting genocide. And thirdly, that the pattern of atrocities indicates an intent to destroy Ukrainianness, which is uh, in breach of Article 3 of the Genocide Convention. And it's very important to understand that incitement to genocide is a crime in itself. It's a crime, even if genocide does not occur. The incitement to commit genocide is a crime. And we can see this in the rhetoric. It's all there in the public domain. For example, Putin in July 2021 wrote an essay himself saying that Ukraine is an artificial creation. So he does not recognize Ukraine. They deny the language, culture, history of Ukraine ever existed. Uh, the chair of the Duma, for example, in February 26, uh, Vladislav Surkov said that there is no Ukraine. There is no Ukrainianness. This is a disorder of the mind. There is no nation. This is just two examples, and we have mo so many more examples of the rhetoric that we do not recognize Ukraine. So this is the rhetoric laying the foundations of incitement to genocide. And then we've seen this translated into action. Now, the Prosecutor General mentioned the transfer of children. You know, when we were doing our report, the numbers we came to were 180,000 Ukrainian children were forcibly transferred into Russia, and they were dispersed throughout Russia. They were dispersed so they cannot coalesce as a single identity group. We have heard soldiers being given orders and using terminology saying, rape the Nazi whores. Rape them so they do not want to have Ukrainian children anymore. 
actions, the rhetoric, and the actions match up. Now, the, our report looks at the Genocide Convention. Article 1 of the Genocide Convention is the duty to prevent. Now, this is very important. The purpose of the Genocide Convention is to prevent and punish genocide. The prevent always comes first. The purpose is to prevent. All state parties that are signatory to the Genocide Convention, the obligation is on them. When the threshold of serious risk of genocide has been reached, when all the indicators have been reached, the obligation is on all states to do whatever is in their power to prevent the genocide. So there's lots of discussion on prosecutions, evidence collecting, tribunals, ICC, all of this is very important. All of this should continue, but the priority and the number one purpose of the Genocide Convention is to prevent. And unfortunately, what we are seeing today is nation states not living up to their treaty obligation of preventing genocide. Now, there's a complete misunderstanding that the, the genocide determination has to be made by some sort, some court. And nation states, you have heard them, I have heard them, they'll say, oh, we have to wait until the ICC or some court makes this judgment. The reason nation states say this is to get out of their duty to actually do something about the genocide that is occurring. They're essentially obfuscating and avoiding their responsibility. Because if you're waiting for a court to make a decision, it completely defeats the purpose of the convention. Your courts will, you know, when do courts make decisions on this? It takes sometimes decades. By that time, the genocide is over. The obligation is on states to use everything within their power, politically, economically, diplomatically, culturally, to put pressure on Russia to stop the genocide. That means that if you are in a trade relationship, you have a legal agreement to buy Russian gas, for example, then those, those agreements can be suspended. And this is why nation states do not want to live up to their obligations. So the Genocide Convention, the trigger, it is not triggered by a court decision. I cannot emphasize this enough. It is triggered when there is a serious risk of genocide. And uh, we have often repeated, and every nation state now, is aware. You know, every day we are seeing areas that are being vacated, that are being liberated, and we are seeing evidence of mass graves. There is nobody that is not aware. Our report has been translated into 13 languages. 13 languages presented to parliaments all over the globe. Every nation state is fully aware of the triggers of genocide. And they we and it is our responsibility to ensure that they live up to the obligations under the Genocide Convention to prevent, prevent the genocide. All the prosecution and stuff, you know, very important, all comes after. But at this moment, we have to put pressure on all nation states to prevent. Otherwise, the Genocide Convention is completely redundant. <coughs> Azim, very powerful. Very powerful. Uh, Andre, I'd like to give you and Clint um, opportunity to address this issue of, uh, of genocide, the obligations of nations uh, who signed up to the Genocide Convention um, to try to prevent. Um, 
one, one can argue um, that this coalition that the United States has put together, that the Biden administration has put together to oppose the Russian aggression, to support the Ukrainians, to allow them to win, um, is an effort in that direction to prevent the continuation of the genocide. Love to get both of your thoughts. Andre, starting with you on, on this question. Uh, first of all, thank you for this uh, very substantial and very strong position, since it's echo something which I, from time to time, uh, transfer from my side, that it's important to be politically strong, not only to wait for decades for judgment of the court, but if we all understand that we are talking and we all agree, for instance, that this is genocide, why should we wait until people who suffer from the genocide will have no chance maybe even to stay alive before this judgment will be taken. So this is very important. We have, actually we have no time once again to restore the international law and to prevent being very strong politically to prevent the acts of genocide in the future. I will let me uh, commend the figure of uh, children deported. You mentioned 180,000. We know, a we heard a lot of figures. And as I mentioned, something which we fix, 5.5, I mean, identified these children. It's, you know, several times less than you mentioned. And this shows, actually, I believe that the, the number of children is much, much more that we identified legally at the moment with evidences. And this is another example of, of genocide, because they kidnap and they make it secret. And what they do, they forcibly give citizenship to these children. They give citizenship to orphans, which from legal point of view, it means that they keep secret of their previous biography. It will be very difficult then to identify these children as kidnapped, forcibly deported from Ukraine, especially if they just ignore this fact. So, from my point of view, the elements of genocide intent, which you mentioned, they are, they don't need any additional ap approval. I just add one more. The absolutely absurd but open and official position about so-called denazification. So when they uh, intentionally said that Ukraine, Ukrainian country 
has something like a Nazism ideology. Or, so this is absolutely absurd. Let me just, I understand that this is open discussion, but I will, I will allow myself to say like this. Uh, I, I've been uh, the member of Ukrainian delegation uh, in negotiations with Russia from the very first day of war, because they asked for this negotiation, been very difficult times, and I was the member of this delegation. And when we met first time, and they started to tell about denazification, you know, it was, it was so absurd. I said, okay, I'm, I was born in Odessa. My mother tongue is uh, Russian. Yeah, what are you talking about? Or David Arachamia, who was, he's Georgian. He was born in, in Georgia, so his mother tongue is Georgian. He lived, we are all citizens of Ukraine. We are, we are Ukrainians. And when they talk about this denazification, it, it was so absurd. And even the absurdness of this being publicly, uh, explicitly uh, mentioned by Putin and his team, as we say, the absurdness is also the element of this genocide. Because they try to explain, explain why they want to kill all of Ukrainians by these absurd uh, ideas. So thank you, and I'm absolutely with you. I'm absolutely on, on your side with your main message, not to wait until decades will come for the judgment. We need to act now. And we are very close to collect, I think, the, collect the number of evidences to prove the intent of genocide, which happened and which is ongoing. Thank you, Andre. Uh, Clint. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I think the. I mean, if you, if you go back and you look at what is coming out from from Moscow, kind of at all levels whether it is its members of the Duma, it, it's Putin, it's the military leadership, state-owned media, it, it is the same message. It is laying the groundwork for, for genocide. Uh, R.I. Novosti, a state-owned media, in April was saying, denazification will inevitably include de-Ukrainization. You know, it's one in the same. It's, it's a euphemism that they are trying to instill in the minds of soldiers that there is a justification for doing this, for murdering, for raping, for kidnapping children, for deporting them. Um, and Azim raised the point, I, I think, which is, which is a very important one, of the crime of incitement to genocide. Uh, we, we have now jurisprudence that's come out of the international tribunals, particularly in Rwanda, where uh, media there, Radio uh, Milkolin, was used to incite people to commit genocide. This has been coming out of Moscow well in advance. I mean, as Andre said, he's been involved in these negotiations going back years. This is a message that did not appear overnight. This, this goes back for many, many years. Uh, preparing people who are willing to implement these acts. And it has to be confronted. And, and I think another point that, that Ozzy made is, is a very 
critical one, that oftentimes people tend to think that the obligation for nations to act when they determine that a genocide is occurring is, is really one of military intervention. But it is much broader than that. Uh, I, I think there has been, in large part, a military response to this. The, certainly uh, from the United States and, and NATO partners to provide military assistance to Ukraine. Uh, I, I think many of us would agree that more could be done in, in this regard. But, but there has been that type of response. But as Azim said, it, it, it can go further than this. It can be canceling contracts for importation of, of Russian, Russian gas and oil. There are a whole range of actions that can be undertaken by governments that will help to undermine the Russian position and to confront genocide as it's happening. And it is very important to ha for that to occur as we continue to build evidence and compile evidence and build a case against the Russians who, who bear responsibility for this. <clears throat> and it seems to be starting. Um, President Putin, all of a sudden now, the past couple of days, has faced some real criticism from his supporters, from the Chinese, from the Indians, uh, from the right in, uh, in Moscow, from the left in Moscow. This is beginning to be clearer and clearer of uh, the, the magnitude of these crimes. So th that is the beginning that we need to push on. And as Clint just pointed out, it's not just military. The military is part of it, because that can stop genocide, but it's also the sanctions and broadening the sanctions and tightening the sanctions um, that, that are going to be important to do this. Azim, you were going to make a point. Yeah. No, I would just like to follow up from what the Prosecutor General said about the, uh, the accusation or that the Ukrainians are, are Nazis. So this is actually a tactic in genocide. This is actually recognized in genocide incitement. And I'll just read out very quickly. This is referred to as accusations in a mirror. Uh, accusations in a mirror is a powerful historically recurring form of incitement to genocide. A perpetrator accuses the targeted group of planning or having committed atrocities like those the speaker envisage, envisages um, uh, in terms of what they're planning to do. So whatever you're planning to do on the targeted group is what you're essentially accusing them of doing that. Look, we're under an existential threat. Ukraine's going to invade us. They're all Nazis. We need to wipe them out. This is precisely what the speaker is planning. So this is a recognized genocidal tactic, accusations in a mirror. So we've seen, uh, we've seen this. And I'd just like to point out very quickly from what you've said, um, uh, Bill, you know, I have no fault of the Americans, the British, and some other European countries. I think they are doing the absolutely utmost to assist Ukraine in this situation. But there are other nations who are not meeting their obligation. They are still purchasing oil and gas from Russia. They are still trading with Russia. They are still fixing their wind turbines. And they are still engaging in some sort of diplomacy with Putin that we cannot humiliate him. We need to give him a ladder to climb down. We need to give him an exit route. This is all completely in breach of their obligations to the Genocide Convention. What we need is for every country, and of course every country is different, but the Convention clearly states they must do everything within their power, within their abilities for maximum pressure. 
sanctions, blockades, you know, cutting off oil and gas funding, whatever it may be, this is their obligation under the Genocide Convention. And this obligation falls upon every single state that's signatory to the Genocide Convention, all 151 of them. Just one other point I wanted to, uh, that you had made that I wanted to pick up on, and, and that was the, the mention of sanctions. And um, it, we all know right now, as we look at the potential for prosecutions, it is going to be difficult to get senior Russian officials into custody, to get them in the dock. Andre already mentioned this earlier, that, that under Ukrainian law, there is an option for trials uh, in absentia. But what is going to be very important is for us to, for the, for the OPG, for the ICC, to develop these cases that clearly lay out the evidence against these officials, to indict them, um, to make it impossible for them to travel, uh, to put Interpol red notices, to uh, make it uh, very difficult for them to engage on the world stage in a way that they have been used to, and, and certainly to bolster sanctions against these people. So even if we don't have the prospect of lots of trials, lots of high-level defendants in the dock in, in the near term, there are other uh, sort of collateral benefits that can be derived from this investigative and prosecutorial process, and hopefully it will, um, you know, cause countries to take a stronger stand if you're able to lay these cases out. I think it's really important. Um, the case for sanctions could be strengthened so broadly, so significantly, by making the point about genocide. Um, because it, it goes exactly in, in that direction. That's it. I would like to see if there are questions from the people first in this, uh, in this room um, who would like to ask questions. You have made the, the effort to come here in person. Glad to have you here. And you get the right uh, to ask the first several questions. We, have, we do have uh, a microphone uh, to enable you to do this. Um, if there are then, aha, we already have, uh, we have some first question right here. And then we will have uh, opportunity for anybody um, online uh, to ask questions and then we will, we will continue to go in that direction. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you very much. I'm Jane Strumseth, a professor at Georgetown, and we're delighted to have Clint on board, and this was a terrific panel. Um, and my question is specifically to the Prosecutor General. Um, you've made a strong case, your president has made a strong case for a special court to prosecute the crime of aggression, which you said is sort of the beginning of all the other crimes, and probably more likely to lead to an indictment against Putin, given the clear role he's played in this aggression. So could you say a little bit more about how you envision such a court being created, the mechanism, how it would come to pass, uh, and what sort of support you'd like to see from civil society, from governments to help with that? Thank you for this question. Um, first of all, uh, we are we start to prepare this case at the middle end of middle and end of March, so first months of the wide-scale aggression. We have a team. Now this team is working. They are actually uh, 
visiting capitals and uh, their visiting international organizations. Last week we have had a, a supportive resolution from the Committee of Ministers of Council of Europe and Parliamentary Assembly of Council of Europe. So we, are, we try to go different parallel tracks. I use the word parallel and I will use it always because many things are done in parallel because we have, we have no time. Uh, the, we have several options. First option is, as it may, may be ad hoc tribunal based on international agreement. And for this, of course, we need the wide number of big countries, first of all, to support this idea. Of course, this would be a political decision. Maybe difficult for some of big players, and I openly say this, because the difference between the, the assistance of uh, our partners to the ICC and to the uh, work of Prosecutor Han and the tribunal is understandable. Helping the ICC, the, the government of specific country is not somehow linked with the result of this, um, uh, of this work because the judgment is taken by internationally, international independent judicial institution. So they just help financially to work and they are not somehow linked with the result. But being a party of international agreement for the ad hoc tribunal means that specific government say yes, we think and we believe that, that the crime of aggression was committed and we are ready to be part of this process. So this difference is not, as I always say, Ukrainians don't understand this different approach in case some countries support the ICC and are a little bit resistant at the moment supporting the tribunal. Because everyone here understands that the crime of aggression was committed. And many organizations, even the GA has already, uh, General Assembly has already pointed out that yes, the crime of aggression was committed. So then to be act, to act, uh, to be active uh, and to support the idea of tribunal is logical from the point of view of every Ukrainian. So this is one uh, option. The second option is, of course, to have it under the auspices, under the umbrella of international organization. So that is why we use, once again, parallel tracks with the Council of Europe and with General Assembly. So we're preparing this and our president will speak about this at his address to the General Assembly, which is taking place tomorrow, I think. Starts today. To, yes, yeah, starts today, but he will, he will address tomorrow. So, uh, different approaches, because we need the result. We use every possible mean to reach the result, and we'll see which approach will be most successful. Thank you. Thank you. To answer your question, Jane. 
No, that was very helpful. I talked about the importance of a web of accountability and a, a, a web of accountability. This is important. Multiple approaches to yeah. accountability, and I think that the tribunal for aggression should be part. It uh, should be part of the web of accountability that includes national prosecutions, that includes prosecutions at the ICC, the case before the International Court of Justice, um, universal jurisdiction prosecutions. There are many ways to build this web, but I do think the prosecution of the crime of aggression should be part of it. Just, yeah, if, if I can just add quickly, um, without denying kind of the the political challenges of, of creating such a tribunal, there actually is a precedent for doing something like this. I mean, as, as Andre said, you, you can still be supportive of the ICC, but you have to recognize that the ICC has no ability to prosecute the crime of aggression right now. Um, the, the last job that I held in, in government was actually on secondment to the European Union as a special prosecutor investigating crimes that occurred in Kosovo at the end and the aftermath of the 1999 war. So these fell outside the jurisdiction of the ICTY. And therefore, you know, under normal circumstances, they would have been dealt with by the Yugoslavia Tribunal. But they could not because of these jurisdictional constraints. So we ended up having to create a separate process to deal with this jurisdictional void, uh, which ultimately ended up in this EU-created Kosovo Specialist Court. So. There is a, a prototype for, for doing something like this. It is going to be challenging politically, uh, and I think anything that is done, it's going to be very important that it have international legitimacy. So you have to get the buy-in of, of key governments to, to, to do this. But as I said, there is a precedent. Thank you. Um, yes, ma'am. He had a question. Oh. He's had his hand raised for a while. Coming to you next. Coming to you next, right over here. Yes, uh, good morning, Andrew Filipovich. I'm an attorney in Philadelphia, past president of the Ukrainian American Bar Association. Vitaim vas A question to the panel, uh, and it kind of dovetails with the prior question about the web of accountability, and then there was a comment about state responsibility. How do you define state? And the reason I asked that question in that way is uh, there are people who say we shouldn't sanction the, the Russian state because it affects, quote-unquote, innocent Russians. How far does the concept of state trickle down within the state? Is it, is it just a Russian federal employee? Is it the postman? Is it the average citizen? Uh, can you comment on that? Andrew, it's a good question. Uh, Azim, have you addressed this? Yeah, go ahead. So, what we look at in our report is the Genocide Convention, and the states are the primary actors in international law, so it's not individuals. So, when we were looking at the evidence, we were not looking at the prosecutorial bar of individuals and what they were actually saying, um, uh, is looking at the state. And uh, it was very clear to us that the Russian state, the Russian Federation, is in breach of the Genocide Convention, so it's the state in its entirety that has to be held accountable and uh, not the individuals. That comes at a very different standard in terms of the prosecutions and so on. I think one of the most important things in all of these legal mechanisms that we're discussing is to have the effect of deterrence to ensure that uh, actors around the globe that are looking at this are seeing what happens to 
you know, when a nation, uh, a powerful nation, invades another one and commits these kinds of uh, atrocities. And uh, for that deterrence to be effective, we need to have these various mechanisms and prosecutions of individuals who made these decisions, but also hold the state accountable uh, at the same time. And one of the things I just want to touch upon, which I think is very important, which the Prosecutor General mentioned, is the issue of reparations. So one of the things that I'm doing at the moment with my institute is that we're putting together a reparations study group in terms of how uh, compensation can be delivered to Ukraine. Now, in the past, all reparations have been done through the Security Council. And uh, take, for example, Iraq. Iraq was paid over $40 billion to Kuwait in reparations after its invasion. It was done, and this was done after Iraq was defeated by an international coalition, and it was sanctioned by the Security Council. Neither of those things are going to happen in this situation. You know, simply Russia has the veto. It's simply not going to happen. Another mechanism is required. So we are developing the multilateral action model on reparations. And what that means is that states have to work in a coordinated fashion to seize Russian assets after Russia is designated as a state sponsor of terror. And this has to be done in a coordinated fashion to seize Russian assets, which are then held for Ukraine uh, for rebuilding Ukraine for uh, reparations and compensation. And this is extremely important because in the current political environment, there is no politician in Europe, the US, or anywhere else that can legitimately stand up, that will stand up and say, our taxpayers' money is going to go towards Ukraine to rebuild Ukraine. It is Russian state assets, and our report, which will be done in a couple of weeks, I put together a coalition of 25 of the top legal experts and economists and finance experts to develop this model, is to essentially, in a coordinated fashion, to use Russian state assets. Just in Belgium, we estimate there are $50 billion of Russian assets just in Belgium. So this, some here is substantial. And this also has, we're talking about deterrence, this also has other effects on this. For example, before Xi Jinping decides to, on any adventures in Taiwan, you know, the members of the Politburo, almost all of them who have investments in the West, none of them keep their investments in China, none of them, because they know what happens uh, when you fall foul of the, of the, of the leadership. Um, uh, they keep all their investments in the West, all of their children have dual nationality. When their assets are under threat, they will think twice before invading uh, Taiwan. So this is a new model that the international community has to look at to seize uh, Russian state assets and to use them as compensation uh, for Ukraine. And uh, the estimation, the early estimations are over $300 billion worth of damage to Ukraine. This will easily top about a trillion dollars when this is all done and dusted. So who's going to be paying for this? The, clearly, it should be the Russian Federation. Just quickly, the, um, I, I think as to your point about how far sanctions should go, is there, there are a wide range of sanctions that can be applied and have been applied already. Um, and, and certainly, if you can curtail Russian uh, trade in natural gas and, and oil, this is going to make an impact on the military machine. A lot of times, economic, certainly the, the economic sanctions that have been leveled against Russia have a limited impact on the population. Maybe over time, they will have more of an impact. I think one of the more effective sanctions are those 
that are just harder for Putin to hide. The sorts of things of excluding Russian teams from competing in the European Cup or the World Cup, uh, restricting travel of Russian citizens, these are things that it's hard for him to explain. You know, why, why is this happening to us? Why is this impacting things that we like to do? And so having that package, and, and I certainly saw this in the former Yugoslavia in, in my time as, as war crimes ambassador when I was dealing with this, and if this conditionality that was put on Serbia, for example, to cooperate with the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, having these types of broad-based things that are more difficult for political leaders to spin sometimes have a greater impact than even those, uh, those sanctions that go into kind of direct impact on the military. Thanks, Fed. Andre. Um, I will now talk not, not as a prosecutor general. Let me give this disclaimer. Um, I will say like this, or let's, let us imagine that we are talking two months ago when I was a politician, okay? At that time, at that time, I would answer your question like this. There is no innocent Russians. They, if, even if they suffer, think they suffer at the moment for what, what my colleagues also mentioned, they can't travel, they can't invest, their money are frozen. It's, from my point of view, if I would answer your question two months ago, it's because we all, maybe not Ukraine, I'm sorry to say it, but the international community did not respond in 2014 as it should respond. And when, I'm very open with you, when now Europeans and US citizens now suffer economically from sanctions imposed over Russia, imposed because there it's really the only possible way to put pressure on them, which is not a military pressure, sanctions. This is because we all did not respond properly in 2014. Some countries, some people thought that it's better to feed the beast than to make respond in 2014 at that serious, even severe level that would prevent genocide, prevent aggression, and prevent this war of 2022. This could be my answer two months ago on your question when I was a politician. <coughs> well said, Andre. Well said. As, as a politician, as, two months ago. Uh, now, now you have other responsibilities. Yes, ma'am. 
Hi, Anna Cave, uh, also from Georgetown, the Center of National Security. Good to see you again, Prosecutor. Um, my question is about case prioritization. Uh, and I think one of the lessons learned from the tribunals is that their impact in some ways was lessened or not as great as it could, it is, could have been because there wasn't a sufficient outreach and engagement with communities and the populations who were actually affected. And so my question for you is how do you think about prioritizing cases given the huge workload, the 33,000 cases um, in light of what will resonate with the people of Ukraine? Um, of course, this is a very challenging task to prioritize. Of course, we prioritize something which has a great uh, impact. The cases like uh, we are now found in uh, Kharkiv region, the massive graves in uh, Izum, uh, they are the matter of priority. All cases of war crimes committed uh, near Kyiv, which we all remember, Bucher, Pin, Gastobel, Borodyanka, these are our priorities. The all cases where now uh, civilians are killed due to shelling, bombing, which are every day uh, uh, civil objects are hit by uh, Russian army, uh, these are cases of our priority, especially when uh, big number of uh, civilians are killed uh, or perished uh, due to um, missiles missile uh, or air attack from russia these are cases which are which we prioritize coming back to the number we are now uh, looking and preparing uh, the some it solutions because we understand practically that from this number of crimes, some of them could be duplicated. Because it, it happens like this. Um, actually, we have two main sources. First source is effect. So hitting of some civilian object, uh, killing of people, this is the fact which is fixed and which is uh, then uh, registered as, as uh, the crime. The other source is uh, the uh, reports or, how do you say it, Zeulenia? Uh, complain of, yes, complain of, uh, of people. And this may happen that uh, different people may complain about the same fact. So that is why uh, we, um, we, we are preparing some IT solution in order to check this system and to find out these uh, duplications. Because we all understand that it's really quite difficult to, to, to investigate and prosecute such big number of crimes. But we, we fix everything. We fix everything just in order to be sure that we don't miss anything. Laura, let me ask you if there are online questions. We have patiently uh, had our, our people uh, uh, standing by. Any questions from the online crew? Yes, we have some good questions. I'll give you two that are both directed to Prosecutor General Kostin. Does Ukraine have the technology it needs to rapidly identify human remains as it collects evidence to build cases for war crimes and genocide? And a second question, you've mentioned recently that you've created a team within your office to focus specifically on issues of conflict-related sexual violence. And can you talk a little bit more about that unit and the resources it has? 
Yes, uh, this is. Uh, thank you for this question. I will ask them to repeat first one for, to, to catch the the exact uh, question. Uh, maybe I, I, I just missed it. Uh, the, for the second, uh, yes, uh, I have uh, created a special unit in the Office of Prosecutor General, uh, which will be dealing with conflict-related sexual violence crimes. Um, this uh, the, this unit is within the Department of Prosecution of War Crimes. Actually, here is. Yuri Belousov, our prosecutor, the head of the department of uh, uh, the uh, war crimes department, as we say, it has a longer name. So within this unit, uh, the, this, uh, sp within this department, this specific unit is, uh, is now uh, organized. We are also in um, communication with uh, our international partners, and we hope in New York, as a side event of General Assembly, we will have a special, a special presentation of the strategy of uh, investigating and prosecuting of uh conflict-related uh, sexual violence crimes together with uh, the uh, Pramila Patton, and uh, we will proceed this work. Uh, we all understand the sensitivity of, uh, of these type of crimes. We all understand the challenges which uh, prosecutors and uh, investigators has, and we all understand the real difficulties of people of different gender who are the victims of this type of crimes. And we are also in contact with the civil society who helps us a lot in order to prevent uh, additional um, yes traumatization. I mean uh, additional uh, uh, say uh, multi yes mul multiple uh, multiple testimonies. testimonies. Yes, thank you. Multiple testimonies because this is this happen and and of course uh, this make the situation more difficult. So we would like to put everything together and uh, proceed with this uh, work. Moreover, we are. Uh, uh, preparing communication strategy from the Office of Prosecutor General and hopefully from other um, very high-level authorities of Ukraine to our Ukrainians who are now safely located in Europe and who could be victims or witnesses of sexual violence for them to report, for them to report safely, confidentially, because we don't want to, to miss, and we... It's very important, you know, for the person who is a victim of any crime to get this feeling of justice. It could be a long way, but I, as a professional attorney, let me say like this, as a professional lawyer, I understand that keeping this inside may ruin the, the human being from inside. Our aim is to help them to talk. And then we will take our, this task in our arms to find the perpetrator and to make him accountable.
and I will ask to. Uh, the do you have the technology uh, to identify the identify human remains? Ah yes, we have uh, we have uh, special laboratories, and uh, thanks to our French colleagues, we have a mobile uh, DNA laboratory now working in Kharkiv region, exactly where where it it uh, it's necessary, and uh, it's uh, the the speed of its uh, work is much higher even than um, regular laboratories which we have. Uh, so we actually we are in uh, communication and negotiations uh, to get more from uh, our partners because we need more these uh, mobile laboratories to identify the uh, the the bodies. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. <coughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hi, uh, Mitt Regan, uh, Georgetown, um, working on the project along with Clint and Anna, who spoke earlier, who are leading uh, the team there. Uh, my colleague, Jane Stromseth. Do we have others here? Let me just see you. Anyone else here? Students? Just stand up. Sonja Geba, who uh, has, is of Ukrainian-American uh, her heritage, speaks Ukrainian, Maria Wong, and Rebecca Ratner. So. Great it's a great, great team. Yes, it's a great, it's a great team, team and, and there are more. And there are. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask the Prosecutor General, um, unlike many attempts to provide accountability in the past, uh, which have been sort of retrospective and looking at what happened and trying to uncover evidence years afterward, here we live in an age, as you know, of 24-7 social media, there's an explosion of information coming in from many sources almost in real time as atrocities are being committed. And I would think that that could create a, a huge challenge uh, just in terms of organizing and managing all that data. Uh, and I'm wondering how you're thinking about going about doing that. It's really a great challenge. Uh, last week I have a meeting with uh, the civil society organizations which are uh, helping us as the Prosecutor General in our work. And this was uh, also combined meeting in person and, and online. Uh, I, I think we're something like 30, more than 30 uh, civil society organizations which helps us. And also helps us uh, with uh, um, like finding uh, and uh, um, trying to fix the open source uh, information which could help us uh, in specific criminal cases. Uh, this is a great job they, they do and we do also because we also have a teams which are doing this in our office and in offices of law enforcement agencies. The question is your question is very in time question. I mean, uh, uh, very urgent. How to analyze all of this? Since we have a lot of video, photo, other files, how to analyze? I understand that current level of the an analyze of uh, analysis of big data will allow us to do it. What we need at the moment, we need, I think, the IT, once again, IT solution first, and then uh, we need uh, uh, specific uh, equipment, but we are 
we are in negotiation to get it from, from our partners because we need a huge storage facilities in order not, not to, first of all, not to lose these files and then to, to keep them somewhere, especially when we are talking about social media where these files could disappear in one day or one month forever. So it's important to, to somehow to fix it and to store somewhere. So uh, this is a challenging task and we are dealing with this. And uh, I, I can't tell you now when everything will be fixed, but I hope that it will be done in, in uh, coming months. <clears throat> Thanks, Andre. So we have time for one more question here. Um, then I'll give the opportunity for any final messages coming out, uh, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Yes, ma'am. Uh, thank you, Irina Paliashvili, uh, U.S.-Ukraine Business Council Chair of the Legal Committee. Um, we, together as legal community with Ukrainian Bar Association, are monitoring all the international efforts, different institutions are proposing different solutions for the special tribunal, for compensations, etc. And we have noticed that there are, like, with all the um, important work that is being done by international institutions, there is a lack of coordination between NGOs, between different proposals. Some of them are competing, some of them are not on speaking terms with each other, and that worries us. And of course, none of those proposals will go ahead without the consent of Ukrainian government. So my question to the Prosecutor General is how you are following all these different proposals, and are you trying to coordinate them, how you are trying to sort out through them and see which ones the Ukrainian government will be able to support? Thank you. Thank you, Irina. Thank you, Irina. Nice to meet you here. Um, the question from the practicing lawyer, of course. <laughs> um, I know that there is a wide range of discussion between lawyers in different teams proposing different solutions. And it's not my personal responsibility to be a judge in the last instance to, to find out which, uh, which proposal is the best one. I always say that I try to coordinate under my umbrella as much as it is possible in order to avoid demotivation frustration and overlapping, I don't want people to really deliver something and then understand that it's not necessary. But my question is also, I will allow myself, is also to, to send it back to you. It's important for the lawyers to come a same conclusion if it is possible. Because what I heard several times, I've been involved in these processes from the beginning of, end of March, beginning of April. Tribunal, compensation mechanism. So I, I know what I'm talking about. And I know a lot of ideas which came. And it's quite difficult, really, 
find out which is the best one. Um, so my answer, my message to you is to, to try to find out common solutions on the experts level. Because different Ukrainian lawyers, organizations has different views. And uh, different lawyers, uh, expert communities provide different exper expertise. It's, we have no time to really deeply analyze everything. We have teams which are responsible. And we know that the mechanisms which we are preparing, we hope that they would be practical and successful. Actually, the compensation mechanism group is under the presidential decree. It's the highest level of, uh, of group which is dealing with uh, all of this direction of the web of accountability. Thank you for this term. I, I used broad accountability, but web accountability, I, it's, it's much better. Yeah, because from my point of view, I, I talked about this with, with President at that time. My, from my point of view, from legal side, this confiscation and compensation mechanism is the most difficult one to establish. It's really difficult. And it needs a combination of legal solutions and political will, which is difficult. So, once again, I would like to coordinate anything possible, and we are working with, we are meeting with Ukrainian Bar Association leadership in, in Kiev, and I'm, I'm ready for, um, you know, further communication. What is difficult for me is to receive the different types of information and different solutions from different groups. Uh, it, it's not because I don't want to read them. I practically have no time to do it. So let us, let's try to prepare everything and to have a joint solution on the level of expert. I know how difficult it is. I'm, I, I, I'm a lawyer, but I think it is possible. <clears throat> it is possible. Thank you, Andre. Uh, yeah, if yeah, I just add a very quick point to this, um, Andre won't say this, but I, I want to give him credit uh, as well for the way that he has approached this. We, when we spoke right before his appointment, he identified coordination of all of these efforts as a very important thing for the next prosecutor general to do. And he has already made huge progress here. There were a proliferation of you know, initiatives to assist from the very beginning of the war. And I think people were well-intentioned. They were motivated by the right reasons, but a lot of them just were not equipped to deliver the kind of things they, they were talking about. That has died off a little bit. And I think the efforts he has made already to try to get this into a more coherent approach to do it in a more coordinated fashion has paid dividends. So again, he won't say that for himself, but I'll give him the credit for it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, Azim, last comment. Just very quickly, you know, within our lifetime, we've seen so many of these uh, genocides actually occurring. You know, Kosovo, Bosnia, Rwanda, Tigray, the Rohingya, Uyghurs, and now Ukraine. On an every single one of these occasions, you know, we say never again, and then shortly after, we say yet again. So this time, let us make sure that this is going to be never again. Let us have the resolve. All the information is out there. All the data is out there. And let us really say never again on this crime of all crimes.
Thank you, Azim, and thanks for all your work on uh, on this issue. It's brought a lot to it. Uh, Clint, final words, uh, Andre. So let me let me just thank um, this crew. Um, let me just say last last words, which are one. Ukraine must win. In order to have accountability, Ukraine must win. Um, and way to, to describe this, way to rationalize this, way to argue for this is to make the case that we've been talking about here today. Genocide is a strong word, um, and it's a motivator. It's a motivator for nation states um, that, are, that, are, that are obliged to do this work. So I think that's important. Ukraine can win. Uh, this counteroffensive up around Kharkiv, as well as down here, Son, um, has demonstrated that that the Ukrainians can win with the support from from NATO, from the international community. Um, and again, this rationale is there. Rationale is there that that can allow that to win. Um, the rule of law is important. We've talked a lot about legal implications of all this. But if one large nation can invade its neighbor, a weaker neighbor, that's not, that's not a world that we want our kids, grandkids to, to grow up in. This is an important issue, and we've given a lot of discussion today. Prosecutor General, you are on the leading edge. Um, I hope you have all of the kind of support that you need. Uh, you know you can count on us for, for more. Um, thank you all for uh, attending here today. Thank you online for your questions, um, and we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Music